It's the 18th of August, 2017, and this is The Room Now We Can Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com, and this week in the news we'll discuss rheumatologist testing too much, too little. We'll discuss how to store etanercept and get away with it, and some interesting ideas about lupus and its management. We'll start off with lupus. Um, survival numbers, as you know, have done very well since the 1990s with the advent of more aggressive therapies and better protocols on how to manage things like renal lupus. Uh, an analysis looking at survival pa pa uh, uh, in lupus patients basically showed that five-year survival rates were highest in, the, in developed countries with high incomes. In fact, it was a greater than 95% survival for both children and adults with lupus. The only thing that I could find negative was that survival in children with lupus was somewhat lower in low to moderate income uh, countries, suggesting maybe it's, a, it's an access issue there. Another study in lupus looked at criteria and recommendations. This is a, an, an interesting group called SHARE that is a bunch of experts got together and developed criteria for pediatric lupus. And specifically, they recommended that the diagnosis be done by the new SLIC criteria and not the old 11-point criteria. They also recommended that newly diagnosed lupus in children those children should have testing for complement deficiencies and ENA, they should have a chest x-ray, and of course they should be referred to a rheumatologist. An analysis by Christina Chambers uh, and her group from San Diego, they also run the Otis Registries, um, looked at three, greater than 3,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and Crohn's disease and compared them to normal controls. What they found was an increased risk of preterm birth and preeclampsia in RA and psoriatic arthritis patients, they did not find an increased risk of depression in those patients. And the Crohn's patients did not have the same degree of risk as was seen in RA and PSA. The downside to steroids was seen in a study, an orthopedic study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine where they looked at the, in, the use of intraarticular triamcinolone in 140 NEO-A patients. Half of them got triamcinolone, half of them received saline. They looked two years down the line and they found as you would imagine, there was some short-term benefits, but long-term there was no advantage in pain comparing those on the steroid and those who received placebo. But more importantly, those who received the steroid had a greater degree of cartilage loss over two years that was not seen in those on uh, placebo or saline, suggesting that, that we may be doing more damage than we think if we're giving repeated intraarticular steroids to such patients. A very bizarre report comes from Annals Internal Medicine where they looked at a 26-year-old Filipino woman who had meningococcemia, um, severe sepsis, had amputation of both her, her hands and, and distal forearms, and then at age 33 she underwent bilateral allogeneic forearm transplants with hands. Uh, and as part of the ther immunotherapy they gave uh, the recipient some donor bone marrow infusions and then followed that up with tacrolimus. Later on, guess what? She develops rheumatoid arthritis. Neither the donor nor the recipient had a history of joint problems or a history of family, a family history of arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. Sort of shakes things up when you're considering the cause of this disease. A study looked at uh, the stability of etanercept. Uh, I don't know what you tell your patients, but most of my patients think it's a big ordeal to travel with this medicine, and it really shouldn't be. Many of them are getting coolers and dry ice and you know letters from from their priest and the government to travel with this medicine it's just not worth it what they really should be doing is one 
taking the drug a few days early, three, four days early at the, is, is perfectly acceptable, or three, four days late rather than travel with this, these contraptions. Or they could do what was suggested by this research that was just published that says that etanercept is stable at room temperature, 25 degrees centigrade plus or minus two degrees, or 77 degrees Fahrenheit plus or minus two degrees centigrade, that's like 72 to 79, almost 80 degrees. And as long as it's stored under those conditions, all the forms of etanercept are stable and good for 30 days. So that means that what I tell my patients is right. Either take it early, or if you're gonna travel with it, wrap it in bubble wrap, put it in your, pur your purse, keep it cool and dark, uh, and out of the extremes of temperature and light, and it's good for weeks. And obviously what's not tested here is, is um, warming it up and then putting it back in the refrigerator. Uh, there are other studies not here that suggest that's not a good idea for the protein contained within the medicine, but that if it's kept out and used at room temperature within 30 days, still good, still has the same potency. Another study from the UK looked at what rheumatoids do when they're given a prescription, specifically a study from the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society in the UK showed that only one in three RA patients would pick up a prescription that was sent to the pharmacy for them. Goes along with a lot of the data that says that up to half of patients don't fill prescriptions uh, that are sent to the pharmacy for them. And the main reason here was that of cost, where in the UK the medicine is not costly and there are programs for cheaper medicine. There is an announcement this week that the tocilizumab study in scleroderma, the next phase, I think this is a phase two study, phase three trial, excuse me, has completed enrollment and we'll see the results of that. You know the first study that was done, the Fascinate study, that was a phase two trial that looked very encouraging. They need this phase three trial to get the indication for, for use in scleroderma. This will have skin and lung outcomes we're going to need another year or more to get those results. How much testing is enough? You know, one day I was seeing a patient, a 26-year-old, a 36-year-old, with new onset, a few weeks, six weeks, 10 weeks, doesn't really matter, of polyarthralgias in her hands. On exam, she has tenderness in her MCPs and PIPs. I did the tests I thought were reasonable, and then I thought, what would my colleagues do? And so I did a Twitter poll on this, and within 24 hours, I had 106 responses. And the, there were four choices there. Just do a sed rate and, and CRP or sed rate CRP and test for rheumatoid arthritis or sed rate CRP, ANA, RF, NCCP, or lastly, a sed rate CRP and hepatitis serologies. The answers to me were a, a bit surprising. Uh, the answers were that 58% of rheumatologists, almost 60%, wanted everything, including the ANA. Why the ANA? I have no idea. The next most common answer was a sed rate CRP, rheumatoid factor, and CCP at 17%. Only 9% did what I did, which is to order a sed rate and a CRP, and that's it. Of course, everybody gets a, C, a chem profile and an, uh, a complete blood count. Now, interestingly, this generated a lot of discussion online, and rheumatologists generally want everything, and then they want to figure it out the second visit. That's really not smart medicine. You have to read my view on this on the website to see why uh, the prudent thing to do is to just do testing as was required. You're supposed to use these tests to confirm a diagnosis. This patient did not have rheumatoid arthritis by any criteria. She had MCP tenderness and a little bit of PIP tenderness with only six joints involved, but nothing to show for it. There was no synovitis or enthesitis or periarticular involvement. There was no other features of our rheumatoid arthritis. This is going to likely burn out in most people. And 
having rheumatoid factor CCP, I don't believe is going to make you treat her any differently. And it's not going to give her a diagnosis. And she's not going to have preclinical RA at that point. So anyway, you read it and you can comment if you like any further. Um, two studies look at back pain and chronic pain showing things that we commonly use don't work at all. First, gabapentinoids. That includes pregabalin and uh, gabapentin. Um, a number of studies, I think it was 26 studies, were analyzed to see what the effects of that were on many different kinds of pain. And that included neuropathic pain and uh, electric, actually, that's a marijuana study. I'm sorry. This was actually six studies, three done in pregabalin, three done in, um, in gabapentin, basically showing no benefits. In fact, the pregabalin showed worse pain. And yet we use a lot of these drugs in trying to manage chronic pain. Another study with marijuana and cabobinoids cab looked at 27 published studies as ability to control chronic pain, what is often used uh, or for where in states where it's legal. And they studied neuropathic pain, pain from MS, pain from cancer and other causes, including rheumatic pain, really showed no benefit. And, and in most of these studies, both with the gabapentinoids and with marijuana, there were more toxicities than there were benefits. I've heard others discuss gabapentinoids that if they went in front of the FDA today, they would not get approved given the hurdles that are required to get a drug approved today. But they are on the market as a sort of social um, wave of, of having importance and trying to manage the needs of many who advocate strongly for marijuana. I don't live in a state where we can use um, cabobinoids uh, other than by prescription and by pill. Lastly, uh, so, actually two more, psoriatic arthritis. If you have comorbidity, guess what? You're gonna have probably worse disease and you're less likely to respond to DMARD and biologic therapy. Analysis of a good cohort of patients with, uh, from, the, from the Dan Bio Registry, I think it was 1,700 uh, plus PSA patients and they looked at the influence of comorbidities. If you had a Charleston comorbidity index of two or higher, suggesting so you had two or more comorbidities, um, you are more likely to have higher baseline disease activity uh, and you're also more likely to have depression. Down the line, you're also more likely to not respond to uh, drug interventions, suggesting again the importance of comorbidity in psoriatic disease. Surprising because most of us recognize this, but most of us certainly don't want to treat it and we assume it's going to be done by the primary care. Oops, that may not happen. We need another strategy for managing comorbidities amongst our rheumatology patients. And lastly, a published report from Calabrese, um, Kavanaugh, and Lipsky looked at the safety of peglodicase in the clinical trials where it's been given. You know, peglodicase came out in 2010. I thought it was very much a game changer when you started looking at some of the data and some of the pictures of patients with severe tophaceous gout um, remitting with TOFI resolving. Um, but yet there's been a concern about the safety of, of peglodicase IV, especially IV infusion reactions. They looked at all of the IV infusion reactions. They looked at anaphylaxis rates using an NIH criteria for anaphylaxis. And overall, they showed that the number of infusion reactions, only about 6.7% of patients had IV infusion reactions. Um, the number of anaphylaxis cases, I think was incredibly low. It was 0.3% um, uh, looking at all patients. But what they found interesting in this particular study and analysis was that the ones who had the most infusion reactions were the non-responders. And that um, was 12% non-responders and 2% if you were getting the drug every four weeks, or it was 9.8% in non-responders and 0.5% in responders if you're getting the drug every two weeks. The authors went on to say that if 
um, we kept uh, an eye on the guidelines and used the drug as it's described and discontinued the drug when the serum uric acid level rose, especially above eight, that you would avoid one non-response into infusion reactions and ultimately anaphylaxis. That's it for this week on RoomNow.com. You can go to the website and see these links and read up more on this information. You can also not only see the Room Now Week in Review, but listen to it on iTunes and SoundHound. And if you go to the social media icons on our website, you can click on one of those and find the podcast for you to listen to in the future. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week.